0: When the plague of the sixth trumpet call was described, my friends, the plague of that terrible war in the area of Mesopotamia, and the people did not repent from their sins, we took notice that that plague did not close with the statement, the second woe is past." This shows the prolongation of this plague which by the way extends and finishes at the thirteenth verse. The thirteenth verse of chapter eleven. Consequently, the content of all this prolongation, the sixth plague, and what's and what follows being two interludes taking place between the sixth and the seventh plague, just like we had two interludes introduced between the sixth and and the seventh seal during the unsealing of this book. We now have these two interludes between the sixth and the seventh trumpet call of the angels. This intervention of the interludes, and if you remember, we explained back then what is meant by an interlude, in essence, a subject which seems to be totally unrelated with the things being said, a sort of philological intervention. Again, we have the interludes, and this is a musical term. We have a musical intermission, which changes the subject in order to create some other impression, to provide some rest. And in the same way, the insertion of these interludes is very necessary psychologically, not only to give the time to the prophet, but also to the listeners of the book of the Revelation to recover from this horrific sequence of events, to somehow catch their breath for a little, and at the same time to prepare for the most extensive, at least in its description, the most extensive plague of the seventh trumpet call which consists of a focal point, and it's sort of the nucleus of the entire book, because during the appearance of the seventh plague, we have the presence of the Antichrist. So now you can understand why this is so extensive in its description, so difficult and terrible. So before we enter into the other horrible plague, the seventh one, have we been able to catch our breath from the terrors of the last one, we saw how horrific the sixth uh, plague was with the most unprecedented war in history. In the midst of these two plagues, these two interludes come to give us a little lift. The first interlude refers to Prophet John, and the second interlude refers to the faithful. The spectator prophet is now found on the earth. He stays silent on the earth, and he's watching the things that evolve down here. Up until now, we had him in heaven. However, heaven does not cease to be the source of all these visions. The second interlude is the continuation of the first, and it's considered an our page of the entire book where it refers to those two mysterious persons the two prophets and we will see who they could be who come to point out the Antichrist but let's begin to look at the first interlude which takes up the entire 10th chapter I will not interpret it for you I will simply read it so you can have a general picture And then we will proceed to interpret some parts of its verses. I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This is the first interlude, my friends, which consists of this entire chapter of the book of the Revelation. But let's look at it step by step. And I still saw another angel, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. So I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was around his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like the pillars of fire." With this incident of the angel, and especially with the use of an oath, what becomes pronounced with certainty is the beginning of the end of the plagues and the end of times. When he talks about another angel, this other angel is definitely different than the other six previous angels who sounded their trumpets. The overall appearance of this angel is very godly in its manner. He descends from heaven. He's clothed with a bright cloud, and he has the wreath of the rainbow on his head. His face is like the sun, and his feet, as I told you, like pillars of fire. And he is of great might, of great power and strength, a mighty angel. His dimensions are immense, and all this supercosmic and splendid appearance is worthy of Jesus Christ, whom he represents and from whom he's being sent to express his relations to John. But let's see the specific characteristics of this angel in more detail. A mighty angel, in Hebrew, Jibor. This sort of reminds us the meaning of the Hebraic name Gabriel or Gabriel, meaning mighty God. Now I pose the question could this mighty angel be the archangel Gabriel? He's called mighty because he serves the mighty God. But he appears as a mighty angel to strengthen the faithful from losing heart, not only from the evils of the plagues, but also from the enticement of evil. If you can understand this, that today, more than ever, we need to have this knowledge of the mighty angel because evil appears so enticing, terribly enticing and I don't know who can manage to always stand upright. However, this presence of the mighty angel brings great consolation to the faithful because it counters the most mighty evil that's enveloping this planet. Especially when the Christians are weaker today in numbers and in worthiness compared to all those who live in this world. So we are in need of this mighty angel. We must feel his presence just like we feel the need for a powerful leader, a strong family leader. When the wife, the children, let me use this image from the home, when the wife, the children feel that the husband, the father, the father of the house, is an important figure, a strong person of strong demeanor, of strong willpower a person of prudence, and of strong will. Then they feel a certain security and confidence because there's a strong and competent person next to them. Likewise, when the faithful feel that they have a mighty angel, this is not of small importance. This angel was coming down from heaven. Also, he's from heaven. Let's make a mental note of this because we will see farther down that the beast, the Antichrist, comes up from the sea, from the bottom, from inside the sea. The angel comes from heaven. During that peculiar spiritualistic meeting or séance concocted by that female medium, a witch in the time of Saul. When King Saul went to receive insight about the outcome of the war with the Philistines, this witch medium called upon the spirits. Among these spirits, supposedly, the spirit of Samuel the prophet was also invoked. Obviously, this was not the spirit of the prophet Samuel, but an allegation, a farce. An evil spirit pretending to be the spirit of prophet Samuel who would be asked about the outcome of this war to take place the following day. And the witch says, I see spirits ascending from the earth. Again, listen. Spirits ascending, coming up, from the earth. These are evil spirits. The same evil spirits which we encounter When we involve ourselves with spiritism, when we visit psychics or mediums, when we hold seances, we don't invoke the spirits of the dead. These are evil spirits, demons pretending to be the souls of the deceased. This is whom we go to ask in our pitiful ignorance. There, the spirits do not come from heaven. They wander within this natural creation. The expression they are ascending from the earth shows precisely their demonic quality. The angel who is coming is coming from heaven. But this coming from heaven also declares that he has a divine mission. I will stay a little more on this coming from heaven. The Lord clearly told us to expect him to await for him from heaven. He said. As when lightning strikes, it cuts through the entire sky and it covers the entire sky and it becomes visible from all those down on earth, so will be the presence of the Son of Men. And this because many false prophets will come, but not from heaven. The first appearance of Christ was here on earth, from his humble birth in Bethlehem, from the Most Holy Theotokos. His second appearance, however, will not be the same, but he will be from heaven. So if at some point a number of messiahs or Christs appear, and they claim to be the messiah, something that the antichrist will say, we need to know that they have not come from heaven. This is a very characteristic characteristic element enabling us to say you are a false messiah, a false Christ, or an antichrist. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are awaiting Christ to come back from heaven. During his ascension toward heaven, two angels told the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus having ascended from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Consequently, the descent of Christ will be from heaven and it will be visible to everyone. With this element that we now brought up, we can corner the Achillesists, or the commonly called Jehovah Witnesses, who teach that the coming or the descent of christ is invisible invisible and for them he has come of course since they falsely prophesied his coming the coming of the kingdom of christ in 1918 1922 1923 and kept announcing day after day from false prophecy to false prophecy eventually they desperately came to the point of claiming that Christ came but he came invisibly so we can't see him where invisibly go figure the Lord told us as lightning is visible and can be seen by all people that's how he will come and this is why i told you all these things so we are not going to be deceived by them and from those who claim that the Lord is already here bodily. His kingdom came. This is a lie. Christ is coming from the heavens visibly, visibly for all people. Now, you may have a question because as you know, all through the centuries, some new discoveries came about and these can pose some question to a few people. Our earth is round and inhabited in its both hemispheres. Now, if Christ comes on the one hemisphere, how the people of the other hemisphere get to view him? Christ will be visible in the entire creation and not only on Earth, but in a mystical and mysterious manner. He will be visible from every point of the universe and from everywhere someone may be. Everywhere you go into the entire universe, And in his kingdom, he will be visible into his endless kingdom everywhere. Yes, the infinite God was united with the human nature, but not even the small stature of a man could somehow make him small or place some kind of distance along these lines. No, these things do not exist. These are realities of our known space as we perceive it. But this time and space, as we know them, Are antiquated we will have new space and new time this to help answer this question the angel had a rainbow on his head the rainbow that we see after a rainstorm because without rain we don't have a rainbow it appears while it rains and the Sun comes out a little side notation to go along with the common knowledge you have about the formation of the rainbow The rainbow is the symbol of peace and reconciliation. But this holds true only for the people of faith, for the faithful and not the unbelievers. If you remember during the time of Noah and the flood, when the flood finished, the rainbow appeared. Of course, it did not appear then for the first time because we simply have The sunlight passing through droplets of water, and the white light is refracted. It is refracted in its particular elements, if you allow me the expression, to its various frequencies. And we have the multiplicity of colors. So this did not happen for the first time after the flood, but God used this sign to place a promise. God will not destroy the world ever again with water, with a flood. This God promised to mankind. So the rainbow did not make its entrance into creation for the first time. I'm repeating this again. And consequently, some unbeliever could say, how is this possible? This is a natural phenomenon. Yes, it existed before and it exists always but God uses this natural phenomenon as a sign, as a mark. We do this when we are walking in an unfamiliar place and we need to find our way back. We use a tree or a stone or a huge rock as a guidepost or as a landmark. In this way, God placed a mark and he told Noah and his descendants, when you see this sign, the rainbow, you ought to remember my promise. A flood such as this will never be repeated. Now, when the angel has the rainbow on his head, it means that the earth will not be destroyed with a flood again. However, a destruction will take place. But after this destruction, we will not have another one. The first destruction took place by water. God is true. No more destruction with water. The second destruction will take place with fire. St. Peter explains this, and very analytically, I may add, in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, the elements will melt, will break down, with fervent heat, and both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. All that exists will pass through fire. What is the nature of this fire? Today it is not very difficult to understand what kind of fire this may be. In another of his phrases, St. Peter becomes very apocalyptic in this very eschatological point. I don't know if God will deem us worthy to analyze the second epistle. It is very apocalyptic, not any less than the first. He says the following, God has Fire reserves within matter itself. Within creation, within nature, there's fire, which fire will be loosened or freed. When this epistle was written, this was inconceivable. The only thing people could comprehend was that if they took two stones or two metals and they would strike them, they saw a spark. When they uh, had a spade hit upon a stone it created a spark or if i take two flint stones and i strike them i will have a spark and light a fire nothing more today however living in a nuclear age we know that matter contains awesome energy energy of tremendous power so now we also have this prescription the knowledge of these things that god has stored up fire Fire is energy, which means that this energy being stored up inside matter will be released. In other words, matter itself will unleash its energy and the changing of the universe will take place. I'll say this again. St. Peter is very revealing, very apocalyptic. What is this saying? It means that the first destruction of people was with a flood with water and now it will be with fire. And the apostle Peter further adds, when all these things are taking place, when all things will begin to dissolve, where can we where, where can we the sinners stand? Where? That's why he tells the Christians to be struggling. Therefore beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent, become true Christians. This is what he writes in his second epistle. Consequently, we see that this rainbow is initially given as a guarantee that a destruction by water will not take place other than this one of fire, which will be the last one. And from that point on, what will exist will be the kingdom of God. History would come to its end. This provides the faithful with much consolation so they can be encouraged and not become weary. The Word of God tells us not to lose heart, not to run out of steam. You will see this as we continue. The purpose of the presence of the angel is precisely this. As I already told you earlier, the purpose is to console the faithful, to help them realize that time will be no more. The end is near. A fourth observation is that the angel is clothed with a cloud. The cloud is symbolic of divine protection. I will remind you the pillar of the cloud in the desert, which served three different tasks during the day. It provided shadow for the Hebrews in the desert, keeping them from suffering burns from the desert sun. At nighttime, this cloud was illumined and it provided them with light just like the moon. And when they were ready to continue their journey to leave the territory where they had camped for a while and to go elsewhere, the cloud led the way and it directed them. It showed them the place or the direction that they needed to follow. Someone could comment that this cloud had certain reason or logic. Do you know what this cloud was, or actually who this cloud was? The Son of God, who would later incarnate the Logos, who would take on flesh after these things, whom the people could not see, the Logos being invisible. They could only see the cloud. Christ, who incarnated after these times is the one who was leading his people to the promised land. He was leading them and providing them with shadow during the day and light at night. Yes, this was the awesome divine providence of God and an awesome example of divine protection, visible, perceptible protection perceived by everyone listen sensible and tangible protection of god of god the logos the word this is expressed very beautifully in our holy week hymnography it uses some of the statements from the old testament of course my people what have i done to you and you have denied me did i not feed you in a desert with manna i filled your thirst with water from the rock I was in the form of the cloud giving you shadow and lighting your way and leading you. My people, what did I do to you and now you are denying me? You don't acknowledge me and you are elevating me on the cross. So be it. You put me on the cross. My blood is capable to wash this sin of yours, the sin of Christ's killing, and I'm ready to forgive you. But let's face it, are only the Hebrews staying away from Christ today? What about the Christians? The Christians who deny and have denied and continue to deny their baptism. And some of them even claim, why should I have been baptized? Did my parents ask me if I wanted to be baptized? They baptized me. So what? So I grow up to live like an antichrist and a God-fighting man. How horrible. So the cloud is the symbol of protection, but it also serves as the symbol of divine presence. Because the Lord said, when the angel appears with this cloud, then it shows that divine presence is not absent. The Lord said some melancholic words in Luke 17.22. The days will come where you will wish to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. What days are these? The Lord had in mind primarily the very last days when much tribulation will be about, and the faithful will cry out, Lord, show us a sign of your presence. At this very moment, and let's all try to grasp this, we are living a Pentecost. Where the faithful gather, this shows the presence of the Holy Spirit. Where the word of God is heard and worship is offered to God. Can you imagine for us to be in single numbers? To have this gathering of ours disperse? Let's not forget that the gathering of the faithful is a manifestation of the church. Listen, the very presence of the church in history. Let's say that there is a persecution, and we cannot meet, we cannot gather together. Does that impress you? Why the faithful met in catacombs nightly, in secret places, using secret methods not to be detected by their oppressors, but they insisted on meeting every night. They endanger their very existence and the confiscation of their property. Did you ever ask why someone could say, why must I leave my house and expose myself to all this danger by going out to a secret church gathering? Couldn't each person stay at home and worship God by himself? Did you ever ask why the faithful acted this way? Because this is how they establish the presence of the church in history. And this is not only for the unbelievers who are chasing them momentarily, but this is for their own sake. In their own eyes, the faithful have and behold the presence of the church and consequently the body of Christ. They have a sample of this Pentecost. Christ said, do not separate these 10 days. You will stay together for Pentecost to be revealed in Jerusalem this aroma of the kingdom of God, then this gives me consolation. This helps me. This is precisely why the angel appears here as the sun, because we shouldn't forget that the faithful will shine as the Lord told us. They will shine like the sun in the kingdom of his father. Sixth, the feet of the angel and his feet were as pillars of fire. This is especially accentuated in the frescoes of the Holy Mountain, where this angel is depicted with some strange legs. His legs are humongous, super tall, like pillars. The prophet stands very short in front of him, and the angel is of gigantic dimensions, extremely tall. His feet are like huge bottles, like pillars, and the one foot stands in the sea and the other on land. We will see the symbolic meaning of this. These feet are fiery, and what is the meaning of these fiery feet? According to Saint Arethas, these great fiery feet serve no other reason but to punish the impious and the punishment of the impious from these spectacular feet will take place from their burning quality and not their illuminating quality. We talked about this point before, but it is very noteworthy and it wouldn't hurt to mention it again. God is fire and light. Actually, God is light, and as light it illumines but burns as well. Much like the sun, it is light which illumines, but it can burn as well. Now the righteous in the kingdom of God will be receiving the illumination of divine glory emanating from Jesus Christ, the state of illumination, the illuminating attribute. St. John tells us, and this is at the very end of the book of the Revelation, I did not see a sun in the city of God. I did not see a sun because the sun is now replaced by the light of Christ. The light of divine glory is present, and we do not have any need from the natural created sunlight. Thus the illuminating quality of the divine glory stays with the righteous. But the divine glory... Fills all things everywhere a created world exists. It also reaches Hades and hell. God is present there as well. Of course, he is certainly present there, but his presence is felt as fire that burns. The burning quality of the divine glory reaches hell and not the illuminating quality. Not what illumines, but what burns. So what reaches the righteous is only what illumines and does not burn. And the impious receive only what burns and not what illumines. And this explains the outer darkness, extreme darkness. Outer means of great distance. In essence, a darkness much greater, many times darker than what we know. But at the same time, inextinguishable fire, asbestos fire that never goes out. But fire presumably gives off light. No, not there. That fire only burns without giving off any light. It only has the burning quality, the burning characteristic. So when the angel steps on earth and the sea, it means that he comes to punish the impious all over the earth by this method, with the burning quality of the divine glory. And not the illuminating quality. He had a little book open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. When the evangelist John sees this angel to stand on the land and the sea, as he stated so accurately here, he insinuates the island of Patmos. The island of Patmos is rather small and if you ever go to the grotto of the evangelist you will see the sea circumventing the island. Your eye can see all around the island. The eye can glance the entire perimeter of the island. The island's kind of small, very small. So he sees the angel to step on the land and on the sea, wishing to say that the angel rules over the land and the sea. And consequently, john's exile to patmos was not the result of christ's weakness but a result of christ's permission john is found there because this is christ's will christ allows this however the angel shows his sovereignty on the entire earth as wishing to say john don't fear because you are isolated here on this island do not fear because you are far away from your beloved church of Ephesus and you are stuck here on a small and dry island God is behind this. God is allowing this God is powerful. Can you see me stepping on the land and on the sea? Do not fear. God is sovereign over all. The powers of darkness no matter what they do, they are awfully weak. I told you that the angel was holding a tiny book. However It is not the same book that we brought up at previous chapters when it was said, Who will open the book sealed with the seven seals? And no one was found, not in heaven, nor on earth, and in Hades to open this book. And while I was crying, John says, a voice was heard coming from an angel standing next to me. Do not cry. Someone was found. He's the Lion of the Root of Jesse, of David but this is an altogether different book, smaller in size and not sealed, it is open, which means that what is written in this book is part of that sealed book, the contents of that book. Please pay attention to this. It is the remaining mysteries which will be revealed in the book of the Revelation, the things which will take place from that point on until the end, and consequently, It is one part of the things to be revealed. And since you will write about these things, it is not necessary for the book to be sealed. It is open. The angel appeared to be saying, you will prophesy. This is what's at hand. You will prophesy about the things to follow. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their own voices. This is somewhat strange here. We see the voice or the cry of the angel initially to be very frightful and to instill fear on the earth, a fear that condemns or a fear that leads to repentance. But you know, it is necessary for this to take place so the people to be overtaken by fear or to leave possibilities to repent and what are these voices of the seven thunders the number seven shows fullness with the word thunder in the scriptures we always understand it to be the voice of god but the voice of god along with the number seven which means fullness so here we have the message this message from god himself when the lord was speaking to the crowds and at some point he turned his eyes to heaven, and he asked for the name of God to be glorified. Then a voice was heard from heaven, a voice like thunder, saying, I have both glorified, and I will glorify it again, John twelve twenty eight. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others were saying, An angel has spoken to him. This was the voice of the Heavenly Father likewise here the voice of the seven thunders is the voice of god now when the seven thunders uttered their voices i was about to write but i heard a voice from heaven saying to me seal up these things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them here the holy evangelist appears to be writing the very moment he is watching this vision He was seen and he was writing at the same time, even though according to tradition he was dictating his revelation to Deacon Prokhoros. This is what we know from our holy tradition, that Deacon Prokhoros was doing St. John's writing. However, this shows his eagerness to write about everything. The holy evangelist wants to record everything revealed to him. But here, while the voice of God continues to reveal, he is told not to write down these specific revelations. This knowledge of the seven thunders is meant to be only for the ears of the prophet. Only he will know these things. Possibly because this could be dreadful punishment for the impious, which could terrify even the faithful had this made known to them. There are some things, my friends, that it is best for people not to know. Man cannot handle this knowledge. It is not to his best interest. I will bring up one or two points which the wisdom of God hides. Do we know when we will die? Can you imagine what would be happening if we knew the time of our death? Our life would be martyrdom. If we would say, I will die on such and such year. We would be living expecting the day of our death. This would be dreadful. By not knowing the time of our death, a multifaceted plan of God is served. God has many reasons not to allow this knowledge for us. But something else along the same lines, when will the end of the world be? We do not know. Why is God keeping this from us? It is not in our best interest to know. Why didn't he reveal to us the name of the Antichrist from 2,000 years ago? When the Antichrist would come? Or what is the name of the Antichrist? Listen, John heard the name of the Antichrist. The evangelist John knows he heard it, but he did not reveal it. He wrote only the number of his name in a cryptographic form. Likewise, here God tells him, This information is only for you. This is not for the rest of the world. Do not write this. This must not be written. The love and the wisdom of God hides this. So this is not a weakness. And this was not done so we could give in to unhealthy curiosity. This was not revealed for the reasons we spoke about however when the time comes then at the proper time this revelation will take place saint Arethas writes on this point seal this and keep it secure in your mind he writes this about john do not make it known at all in your writings Maybe it is best for this knowledge not to be presented or revealed before the presence of the last days. So here we have a cryptogram, a silence in something is insinuated, but the rest is silenced. This is a privilege of the prophet. This is hard, however. It is not easy to know what others do not know. Something that he must never reveal to anyone. Something that he must only know. Imagine, my friends, if a person knows when I will die, something that I don't know. And I'm clueless about this. How must this person feel, especially if this person happens to love love me? So you can understand that this knowledge can be very hard, difficult. Something similar happened with Daniel the prophet. This is worth mentioning here. And you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal this book until the time is finished until the fulfillment of time what time not the entire history until the time finishes for all the things prophesied and this was until the birth of Christ or if you will the presence of antiochus the epiphanes and so on seal these things he says meaning that all those who read your prophecies will not understand except when the time of the fulfillment comes and please pay attention to this very important point it helps us understand this very book of the revelation here and now whatever we're able to understand it means that the time has come for us to understand whatever we don't understand it means that the time has not come do whatever you want you will not be able to decode the name of the Antichrist however some other things we can see. As we were saying uh, the previous time about the 200 million of cavalry, 200 soldiers, this has become a reality. The possibility is real, this we know. When you see the colors red, blue, and yellow, we cannot help but be amazed. We were saying at a previous time and we repeat, this is really truly amazing. These colors were meaningless only a few centuries ago they were unknown no one could make any sense out of these colors today however these colors come to let us understand a lot and the continuum of this prophecy of Daniel is of much interest to us when it says and i heard but i did not understand there are certain things that the prophet hears but does not understand. And they need to be explained to him. And I said, Lord, what are these last things? Not the end of times, as far as the history is concerned, but the last days in relation to Christ's birth and so on, in relation to his first coming. I underline this for you so you can know it. The prophets and their prophecies are not exhausted. Their prophecies do not become totally fulfilled in the first presence of Christ. The prophets of the Old Testament are not exhausted. This is why we must study the prophets of the Old Testament, much like the New Testament. It is a delusion to think that only the New Testament matters, and we should only concentrate on the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets have not been exhausted. I repeat once again. And the Lord tells Daniel, and he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are closed and sealed till the time of the end, until the necessary time passes. Many must be tested and thoroughly whitened and tried with fire and sanctified. But the transgressors will transgress, and all the transgressors will not understand. But the wise, those who have understanding, will understand. So according to the scriptures, only the godly people will understand. Consequently, the holy scriptures, the prophecies, are locked for the ungodly, for the unbelievers and the impious. The Old Testament is simply an old code of ethics and laws. And do you know what is the New Testament? A newer code of ethics, revised, renewed, and improved which is now 2,000 years old, and it has also gotten old, and it does not matter too much. This is how most people, how the unbelievers and the lawless, look at the Holy Scriptures. For the faithful, however, the Holy Scripture is life. It shows, prepares, and pre-announces. It points to the kingdom of God. All these things, my friends, are markers for the faithful only for those who have the Holy Spirit, and he opens their eyes to see. And this is what we truly pray with all our heart for us to have. But we'll continue next Sunday.